Well, I say very early in the first critique and, and several times thereafter, Kant is reminding the reader that the project is to raise, if possible, is to raise metaphysics to the level of a science as one would understand science at the close of the 18th century, namely a systematic body of principles on which you can ground truths that are at once universal and necessary. So the question is whether, whether this can be pulled off, and, it, and if so, what assumptions must, must be made. But he wants to make clear what, what gets us to be metaphysicians in the first instance. And I think in the back of his mind, this is just another reminder of how people like Hume get themselves and the rest of us in trouble. What gets us to be metaphysicians in the first instance is that as ordinary precipients going through a life of ordinary events and having the most ordinary sorts of experiences, we begin to ask questions about the source of the experience, the nature of the experience, what it is about our experience that matches up or fails to match up with what others have, can we trust uh, our senses? What are we supposed to do about these illusory phenomena, etc., etc.? And so reason begins to raise questions about the nature of experience itself. Before long, you're steeped in conjectures and wild theories and, and unsupportable, untestable suppositions. You've now entered, he says, the arena of metaphysics, do you see? This is where these conflicts are played out. They're played out in the individual person and they're played out in whole schools of philosophy. Now since you are uh, learned Oxford scholars, you know where the very term metaphysics comes from. It comes from Aristotle, but it doesn't come from Aristotle having an idea of what metaphysics is. Well, of course he had an idea of what metaphysics is since he invented it. But um, it's in the work we call Aristotle's metaphysics that in book one he informs his students now having addressed the major issues in the natural sciences, physis, we will take up fundamental questions regarding the nature of being as such. So, what he's what he's going to be lecturing on now is something that comes after the treatise on physis. And when first century scholars started line, AD, he started lining up uh, Aristotle's work and imposing a chronology on them. This work, which came after the physics, was simply designated metaphysica, after the physics. Now in the good old days, when we were all very serious about keeping things neat and tidy, we used to tell students that metaphysics had two interdependent branches what, that constituted metaphysics. One had to do with the question of real being, real existence, so that one ground of metaphysical inquiry was ontology. And there are fundamental ontological questions, and in fact, Aristotle's metaphysics addresses questions of that sort. Are there really substances? Do they undergo change? If they undergo change, do they remain the substance they were, etc., etc.? But of course, to address a question like that, you have to have some mode of inquiry. 
And every mode of inquiry is subject to criticism. Every mode of inquiry has its limitations. And so in the process of addressing ontological questions, you also have to ask how adequate, how apt the mode of inquiry is that you're using to address the question. And that comes down to us as epistemology. And so metaphysics in the traditional sense was a combination of ontological and epistemological uh, uh, inquiry designed to answer fundamental questions about real existence and the nature of the relationships that obtain among really existing things. Sometimes Aristotle's metaphysics is collapsed into, uh, you can summarize his uh, position by saying that the number of things we can know is determined by the number of questions we can ask, of which minimally, anyway, there are four. Does a thing exist? If it exists, in what degree does it exist? In what relation does it stand to other things? And what is it for? What is it for? The teleological part of explanation. So Kant is coming along centuries later. He's respectful of Aristotle, but he wants to notice that although mathematics and science have come a long way since Aristotle's time, this business of metaphysics doesn't seem to have moved an inch. And the question is why and what might be done to move the ball further down the field. Will we ever get out of the arena of contests in which one set of conjectures and speculations does battle with another set? Meanwhile, what has the world of high thought and science had to say about all this? And Kant laments the fact that because metaphysics has gone nowhere, the, the persons most interested in objective science have adopted what Kant calls indifferentism. It's sort of a pox on all these metaphysical houses. Why bother with it? We've got Newton, we've got Galileo, we've got Torricelli. We're doing just fine. Let the philosophers drive themselves crazy. And Kant understands and correctly understands that that is not a permissible option. Science cannot be indifferent as to its most fundamental grounding. It cannot be indifferent to the question of what presuppositions make it possible in the first instance. So the metaphysician's task is to restore metaphysics to a state of respectability, lest scientists and mathematicians become complacent and thus uh, court error. Now, what isn't on offer? Well, what is not on offer is the evidence of sense as a way of settling these questions. If you take a systematic science to be something that is parasitic on core universal principles, necessarily true, that is foundational for anything one erects on it, the evidence of sense is uniquely inapt. It's shifting, it's subject to error. The most you can claim for it is a kind of contingent, factual truthfulness, but certainly nothing universal. So what Kant wants to make clear is that the nature of this metaphysical inquiry is into those pure aspects of the understanding. And when Kant says pure, 
he always means non-empirical. Reinen Vernunft, pure reason, is reason stripped of all empirical supports, attributes, and content. Pure. Now, in the preface to the second edition, we find him scolding anthropologists and what today we'd call sociologists and Gad's psychologists who, who think that you can settle some of these disputes by looking at the peculiarities of the human condition or certain cultural forms of thought, etc. This is quite alive and well today, of course. And Kant says metaphysics doesn't have anything to do with that at all. So in a word, you can underline this in your notes, Kant's metaphysics is not psychology. All right, it's not psychology, and therefore it is not neuropsychology, it's not neurophysiology, it's not brain mechanisms, just put all that away. Nothing about brain function is universal and necessary, and therefore it won't do the job. If you're looking for the center for the categorical imperative, you're working the wrong side of the street. I should tell you, there are people who are looking for the brain centers associated with the, I don't know, the categorical imperative. Um, I won't mention names because they're well known and some of them are friends of mine, but um, back in 2001, I was giving a term of lectures at Princeton and was asked to comment on work going on to identify the central nervous system locus of moral decision-making. I thought the whole thing was quite daft and politely said so when two months later, I think it showed up on the cover of Newsweek or something with a little bright dot the fMRI showing just the place in the brain that makes moral decisions. <laughs> My Lord. Uh, now, on the necessary and the universal, as you might guess, Aristotle is the one who put the ball in play, and he put the ball in play with formal logic. Formal logic, Aristotelian logic, syllogistic reasoning, etc., constitute the very rules of thought that apply to all of our deliberations, whether pure or empirical. These are truth-saving or truth-preserving logical devices. They are not modes of discovery. So although they constitute the formal rules of thought itself, they are, they, they are not intended and cannot reveal the factual nature of the external world. So something in addition to that is going to be required. So what Aristotle offers then by way of the syllogism, Kant is going to give a, is going to establish a nomenclature for him. This is where he makes the Kantian distinction between propositions that are analytic and propositions that are synthetic. Analytic propositions are universally and necessarily true, but they're true because tautologous. In an analytic proposition, Kant says, the meaning of the subject term is contained in the meaning of the predicate term, as in all bachelors are unmarried men. 
Of course, it's true that all bachelors are unmarried men, but it's a definitional truth. It's not that you found out something new, either about bachelors or about unmarried men, by learning that all bachelors are unmarried men. So it's in the nature of an analytic proposition that the truth it preserves can be known a priori. You, you don't have to run around asking persons you know to be bachelors, are you married, do you see? If you're doing that, you don't understand the language. So it's not something gained by way of empirical inquiry. It's something established by the very terms of the proposition. So analytic propositions are universal and universally and necessarily true, and their truth is known a priori, before experience, independently of experience. What about the facts of the world? The facts of the world are contained in what Kant refers to as synthetic propositions. It's another one of those terms you wish had been translated in some other way. But synthetic in the sense of pulling together the attributes and properties of things such that you know what the thing is. It's perfectly all right. Oxford lectures, we come and go as we please, actually. So, a synthetic proposition. This contains both metal and glass. This is capable of holding a fluid. This is blue. Now, these synthetic propositions involve the pulling together of sensory data in such a way as to identify something. The typical claim is that the truth of synthetic propositions can only be established, only established by experience. So the truth of any synthetic proposition is established a posteriori. In a nutshell then, Hume's claim, since Hume is always going to be in the background when he's not in the foreground, Hume's claim is that the truth of no synthetic proposition can be established a priori. Which is just another way of saying reason cannot unearth the facts of the world by way of its own resources, do you see? The rationalist project simply fails. If you want to establish the truth of a synthetic proposition, that's going to be based on experience. And here's the bad news. As it is based on experience, what you come up with will be contingent, probabilistic, to some extent subject to the errors to which the senses are prone. It's going to be specific to a particular species, perhaps under special circumstances, maybe dependent on the age of the observer, etc., 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 so that we return to the scandal Kant refers to in the prolegomena you can't establish the reality of an external world. You, you, you can't have a slam dunk once and for all proof of anything that comes under the heading of a synthetic proposition. Anything might be the cause of anything. So if in, a, uh, in something shorter than a paragraph, sentence, you wanted to boil down the contest between Kant and Hume, Kant is claiming that the truth of no synthetic proposition can be established a priori. 
and Kant is claiming that if we can establish the truth of any synthetic, even one synthetic proposition a priori, that's his answer to Hume. So that's going to be a central part of, uh, of, the, of the first critique. Now, there are already, Kant says, uh, any number of synthetic a priori truths that are known. In fact, mathematics and the physical sciences are riddled with them. Shall I give you a synthetic proposition known to be true a priori in mathematics? There's no number so large that one cannot be added to it. Now that's, a, that's, that's true. If you're doing this, you say, Jean Piaget describes the radical empiricist as one who believes the series of positive integers was discovered one at a time. See? So if I tell you that there's no number so large that one cannot be added to it, and you find yourself running out of fingers and toes, you're very, very young. You're much younger than you are. That's a synthetic proposition, known to be true. What about in the sciences? Can anyone think of a synthetic, think like Kant now, think Kant who thinks the first critique. Can you think of a synthetic proposition known to be true in the developed sciences that would be true across all developed sciences? Yes? Yes, or more, or more generally, every effect has a cause. Yeah, every effect has an antecedent cause. If you want to put it in the form of something Granny might have said, nothing will come of nothing. Well, that wasn't Granny, that was, that was Bill Shakespeare, wasn't it? So there's no line so long that you can't increase its length, etc. And now the question is going to be whether metaphysics itself can be, can be shown to be based on similar synthetic propositions, the truth of which is necessary and universal and known to be known to be the case. That's one other way of putting the project itself. Kant was not the only one who was impatient with the state of metaphysics at the time. In fact, the Prussian Academy of Sciences had a prize competition in 1762 and if you wanted to enter, this was the question you had to address to win the prize. Listen carefully now. This would still be quite a good question. Quote, whether metaphysical truths in general, and especially the first principles of natural theology and morals, are capable of the same degree of proof as geometrical truths, and if they are not capable of such proof, what is the nature of their certainty? And to what degree can they achieve it? And is such certainty sufficient for conviction? Can metaphysics give us a totally credible account of the claims of religion, for example? How about the insistent demands of morality. Is it merely a matter of taste? Is it merely cultural? 
could we find some place that, you know, non-vegetarian and they like to eat their young and that happens to be their preference? Or is there some way of establishing metaphysically that there are core moral precepts, the truth of which is necessary and universal if, and then you'd have to fill in the if with a certain kind of life as possible, etc., etc., etc. So there's the prize competition, and Kant entered it. Immanuel Kant enters the prize competition of 1762 and finishes second. Who won? Moses Mendelssohn won, in part because he cheated. He actually answered the question head on. Kant was doing some other things. But uh, isn't it somewhat gratifying to know that, in a manner of speaking, Kant got a second? Um, no. What's recorded by the competition itself is the Prussian academies, and that is to say, indeed, the, the Prussian aristocracy, the Prussian king, already worried about the relativizing trends now taking place in the Anglo-European world. Remember now, this is the 1760s, the French philosophes are having a heyday against all traditional forms of authority. This is 1762 and 1765. Voltaire publishes a kind of ridiculing play on the claims of Leibniz. What's the name of the play? Candide. Candide. And who is the learned Leibnizian in Candide? Dr. Pangloss. And Pangloss has established without doubt He's established to a moral certainty in virtue of his rational calculus that this is the best of all possible worlds. Now, it's part of Leibniz's rational philosophy that, yes, there is a distinction to be made between matters of fact and the truths of reason. But Leibniz argues that in the end, if we really had fully developed knowledge, we would understand that all propositions, including all factual propositions, are analytic. That is, everything is what it is because necessarily it must be. And if you follow that throughout the arc of the argument, then of course one of the conclusions, almost trivially true, is that this indeed is the best of all possible worlds. Any questions? So, um, a musical was made out of Candide. The music was written by Leonard Bernstein. And the book was written by Richard Wilbur, the poet, and Dorothy Parker, whose uh, moral instruction we all should follow. Quote, do whatever you like, but don't frighten the horses, close quote. And um, uh, Pangloss has wonderful lines given to him by 
by Dorothy Parker and Richard Wilbur. And at the very end of the play, um, one of the characters just looks at the audience and says, any questions? So. Kant was very much influenced by Christian Wolff. In fact, Kant went so far as to say that this is Kant on Christian Wolff. Quote, he was peculiarly well fitted to raise metaphysics to the dignity of a science if only it had occurred to him to prepare the ground beforehand by a critique of the organ, that is, of pure reason itself. He finds in Wolf this important insight. The insight is that we are not passive observers of the external world. We bring a certain assortment of cognitive and perceptual powers themselves governed by principles to bear on every factual claim we make and thus it's only by developing our understanding of our own mental apparatus now he didn't go so far as to say a thorough and critical appraisal of reason itself but a development of our own mental apparatus so that we can see what it is we're adding to what we take to be the truths of the external world. I say Wolf was, was important. He agitated for a scientific comprehension of the human mind and uh, a systematic study of cognition. He's also critical of empiricistic alternatives. Every time I say empiricistic alternatives, I always think Locke Barclay Hume, Locke, Barclay, Hume. Not, not that there aren't others, but these are the figures with whom Kant is going to wrestle most uh, vigorously. Um, Wolf was a Leibnizian. In fact, in fact, much of Leibniz's fame was posthumous. And much of the attention paid to Leibniz's teaching came as a result of the influence Christian Wolf had and the recognition that Wolf was providing distillations and uh, supporting essays on Leibnizian philosophy and Leibnizian theology. Um, in one of his most celebrated works, The German Metaphysics, Wolf says, because of that which one knows only by experience, one knows only that it is but doesn't see how it's connected to other truths. This will be a persistent complaint of the rationalist. What do you end up with Bacon when you have Baconian science? You end up with a thick and thickening book of observations. But there's nothing there to pull it together. Remember, how is nature possible? How, 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 how do all of these facts, these disparate facts, these merely contingent facts, finally becomes subsumed under something that is systematic, universal, and principled. And the argument against empiricism is that it has no means of doing that. It has a kind of mechanical associationism. And my goodness, what sort of a systematic world do you get with that? Even Hume says, with that, anything could be the cause of anything. So on the rational side, the rationalist side, what one is trying to do is render experience intelligible. 
And on the empiricist side, there is the complaint that every attempt at rendering experience intelligible is going to be based on precepts and principles that cannot be rationally grounded, cannot be rationally validated, you see. So Wolf is clear that empiricism has no means beyond associationism by which the elementary sensations or elementary ideas could possibly comprehend the natural world as, as given. Now, um, Locke's essay concerning the human understanding was, was read by Leibniz, and Leibniz prepared a book-length reply to it because he wanted to engage Locke directly in a productive philosophical controversy. And then Locke did something entirely unfair. Do, do you know what he did? He died. So here's Leibniz, hell-bent on having a good, robust sort of cafe metaphysics argument with the great British empiricist, and lo and behold, Locke goes ahead and dies on him. So Leibniz sat on the work for quite some time, and it, it, it finally was published, and it was published under the title New Essays on the Understanding. In that work, he attributes to Locke uh, a, a, a maxim, which you'll find nowhere in Locke. It, it's probably a fair attribution, but it's a scholastic uh, maxim, which I say is not anywhere to be found in Locke's essay. Nihil est in intellectu quod non fuerit erat in sensu. Nothing is in the intellect which was not first in the senses. Nothing is in the mind except by way of the senses. Remember in in Locke's essay concerning the human understanding, he says, how comes the mind to be furnished? I answer in a word from experience. So, nihil est in intellectu, nothing is in the intellect, quod prius, which first is not, was not in the senses. Leibniz's reply to this could actually have been boiled down to two words, three words. Nisi intellectus ipsa. Nothing but the intellect itself. So, here are the terms of the dispute. On Leibniz's side, there must be an active organizing mind. There must be some set of organizing principles and precepts such that experiences don't simply become a bag of happenings. Rather, they become a coherent whole. They cohere. They render the world intelligible, not merely sensible, but intelligible. Well, how much of this prefigures the critique of pure reason? A good deal of it prefigures what Kant is, is going to be arguing for. Namely, precisely what is in, so to speak, the intellect that is responsible for the integration and synthesis and the rendering intelligible of the evidence of sense. Now, um, 
There can be no synthetic proposition whose truth can be established a priori. And Kant takes a look at what Hume is claiming in the inquiry. Remember, Kant did not have Hume's treatise of 1739. He had the inquiry of 1751, which was translated into German. The treatise was also translated, but not in time for Kant. So here's David Hume, who tells us that he sees on the billiard table before him uh, a ball moving, striking another ball, which then moves, quote, and I must own I cannot see some third term betwixt them. So what Hume can't see, what Hume has no empirical evidence of, is causality. It's not on the billiard table. So where is it? Well, it must be in Hume. It must be some habit of the mind. Similarly, in the domain of morals, Hume has us examining this poor figure. You see, the victim of maybe highway robbery, sp sprawled out on the ground, pockets emptied, in a pool of blood perhaps. I could make this as gory as you like after lunch. And Hume summons us to find anything in that empirical fact, anything in the picture that is morally wrong. So where is the moral wrongfulness? It's not out there. It's in here, or perhaps more aptly, in here. It has to be something that excites in us a feeling of revulsion. Do, where do you feel revulsion? I generally feel revulsion uh, right about here, I would say. Sometimes I call it heartburn. It comes if I watch the news. Feelings of revulsion or feelings of happiness. That is to say, the moral ascriptions that, that we make are reflections of how events in the external world affect us affectively, emotionally, sentimentally. He's one of the great figures in the British sentimentalist tradition of moral thought. So again, causality is a habit of the mind based on constant conjunctions. Morality is a set of sympathetic responses to events Where does this put the physical sciences? Where does it put all the sciences? What does it do to the very notion of objectivity and our, and, and our comprehension of the objective facts of the external world, which after all is the part of the world of knowledge that Kant's first critique is seeking to save from skepticism? Now, I don't want to be guilty of a libel. I don't want to say, though it's absolutely true, and truth is a defense in a libel action. I suspect that more than half of this throng is quite at home with Hume on morals. I mean, I'd be very surprised, do surprise me though, if you were prepared to take the position that moral precepts are absolute and universal that the adequacy of a moral 
theory is entirely independent of the psychological, social, and cultural dimensions of the lives of those who subscribe to the theory, that there are moral truths that are true across all time, etc., etc. That's a pretty old-fashioned way of viewing things. Didn't Hume get it right that, after all, what we mean by morals is just a set of largely sentimental dispositions. We then do a kind of rational gloss on our own feelings, and we might come up with some quasi-utilitarian account that not only does it make me sick to my stomach, but it's, you know, bad for the stock market, that sort of thing. You do realize that if you attach yourself to a view like that, you, you are prey to a, a quite interesting criticism that was advanced, that can be found in Kant, and was advanced actually by G.E. Moore, of all people, a century ago. Here's the problem with the view. I'll try to do this right if I can. Now, I know what gives rise in me to feelings of revulsion. Right? Split infinitives, for example. The improper use of the gerund. All sorts of things. And the older I get, the more things come under that heading. Most of them grammatical. But I don't quite know what gives rise in you to feelings of revulsion. So, Let's say we go down the highways and byways of the world and we both see that body stretched out in a pool of blood, pockets emptied, and I go something like, ooh, and you go something like, ew. Now, I know my feeling of revulsion, but I have no way of knowing your feeling of revulsion. Now, we walk a little further and there's another body and it's even in worse shape and then I go, ooh, ooh. And you go, ooh, ooh. And you look at me and say, that's more revolting to me than the first one was. And I say, well, it's more revolting to me too. But as I don't know the magnitude of your revulsion, and you don't know the magnitude of my revulsion, we can't have a moral argument. So there's something counterintuitive about a theory of morals that precludes serious moral disputes. How do you argue with people regarding their toothaches? Well, you say it's a terrible toothache, and I say I doubt it very much. That's not grounds for You said to your dentist, I've got a toothache, and he says, oh, come on. You change dentists, you say. So there, there is that counterintuitive consequence. There are answers to all these things. We're, we're philosophers, so there's an answer to everything. Um, the, the problem is then there's an answer to the answer, you know, and it, it, it goes on. And we engage in what Kant referred to as haruntapen, kind of blind groping that seems to be getting somewhere because our arguments get louder. Um, well, Hume sees billiard balls on a table before him. But you understand that space is also not given as a stimulus. He sees one ball move and then another ball moves. And you understand that time is also not given in the 
stimulus array. There are no sense organs for time. There are no sense organs for space. We've already seen the, the dispute regarding space. Leibniz has a reasonably good argument that concludes with there's no such thing as absolute space. There's no such thing as absolute space because there is no, call it a cause, call it a sufficient reason, there's no cause of nothing and if by absolute space you mean something entirely empty, something entirely empty is a nothingness and you can't cause nothingness. So I, I say on one account space itself is problematical. But whatever you might want to say in behalf of Newtonian space, you certainly can't say that there's a sense organ that responds to it. So where is Hume going to get a billiard table out there with one thing moving and then another thing moving. So we already begin to see what Kant's ploy is going to be. Kant's ploy, his, his, the, the gambit goes something like this. You accept Hume's conclusions but you show that there are presuppositions necessary for those conclusions to be defensible and the presuppositions turn out to be at variance with the Humean position in the first instance. What is it that must be the case for there to be temporally successive events? What must be the case for anything to happen in space? And so one might want to argue, as I shall be arguing next week, that on Kant's account the success of Hume's program presupposes the adequacy of Kant's metaphysics and particularly the adequacy of Kant on the pure intuitions of time and space. Now, I did say something about, about, uh, about Fichte and um, I, I was, of course, joking before class with think him who thinks the wall. But I do want to say something about Kant interpretation because we're now getting to the point in these lectures where interpretation is required. The interpretation that I shall be offering in the balance of these lectures is, shall we say, sympathetic but not fawning. And sympathetic in this sense, Kant is one of the great philosophical minds in the history of philosophical reflection. It gets tiresome to see the volume of books and articles so self-contented in establishing how silly Kant was to claim X or Y, how wide of the mark he was with a particular argument, how absolutely uh, uh, self-contradictory he is from page this to that. But you, you get a, a picture of Kant very much like the picture philosophers of mind give you of Descartes, that he was some ninny who attached himself to some theory or thesis, some theater of the mind, some homuncular theory according to which we've got to have someone inside looking at what we're looking at in order for us to see it, that, that, that any first-year philosophy student can do much better at. Silly Descartes, for goodness sake, he makes mistakes that 15-year-olds would find laughable. I 
want you to disabuse yourself of that convenience. Descartes was not the class clown. And Kant did not go through two editions of perhaps the greatest metaphysical treatise ever composed while proving how wonderful he was at missing the point and contradicting himself. So what I'm going to presuppose in the lectures is where the, where the text is problematical, there's a stylistic problem, a translation problem, and to some extent perhaps a problem of comprehension. You want to begin with the assumption that if you don't get what Kant's saying, it could be that you're not getting it. Not, not necessarily that he isn't saying it. So that's what I mean when I say that the lectures will be sympathetic. I, I will always try to think the Kant who is thinking the first critique. And there's a secondary literature out there that you could build a house with, a very large house with, that will make clear to you how routinely Kant gets almost everything wrong. I began these lectures with Jonathan Bennett declaring the body of Kant's thought to be dead and gone, and the only remaining task is to see if you could find some semblance of life amidst the litter. Yeah, sure. See you in a week.